Welcome to this episode of the Empowering Ability Podcast. Today, I've got an exciting guest here with us, Milton Tyree, who's based in the US and has a professional and personal experience over the decades helping people with disabilities have strong work roles. He uses principles from a theory called SRV, or social role valorization, as really the foundation of his work. Milton helps uh, individuals and organizations um, include, involve, and appreciate people who are often misunderstood and rejected. So he'll be uh, really sharing his insights about customized employment um, and how to get a job that's set up well for people with disabilities right from the start. So I'd like to welcome in Milton. Milton, how are you? I'm doing well. It's good to see you, Eric. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, glad that you're here with me. And um, I've had the pleasure of attending, uh, I believe it was your four-day workshop on customized employment. And then I've had you come and speak to families that I work with on an ongoing basis in EA Club. Um, two, is it two times or three times? <laughs> I'm losing track here, but um, it's been great to just to learn a wealth of information on um, supporting people with disabilities, our loved ones, to uh, to gain employment. Milton, to start us off here, I thought it'd be helpful maybe just to give you the opportunity to share a story of someone who maybe struggled with employment, but um, through maybe trying some things differently, was able to su successfully um, gain and, and keep uh, paid employment. Sure. I, you know, one story particularly comes to mind, Eric, because it's a before and after story. And I was a part of both parts, the before part that didn't work very well and the after part that worked much better. And um, this is a story about um, a man named Tim, and I have his permission to share the story. I asked him a number of years back if I could because I said that his story just was really, for me, the beginning of my really deeper understanding of what this work was all about. And that was 10 years into the work for me. So um, just a bit of my background, how I got into employment work. I started out as a high school special education teacher, and my students were all going home. So I was frustrated by that. And I ended up getting a job at the sheltered workshop and taking my students who'd been sitting at home with me. And I also got frustrated at the sheltered workshop just because the work wasn't very challenging. Or we'd run out of work or people wouldn't have the right kind of work. And just about that time, I had the opportunity to learn about something called supported employment. And this was 1981. So supported employment was in its infancy in the U.S. And I got to work with a parent uh, teacher organization and we started a small private nonprofit called Community Employment. So this is where Tim comes into the picture. So Tim was still a high school student um, in the early years of, of uh, community employment. But I was invited to help the school where I used to work to start a work transition program. And Tim was the one of the people served in that. And so the way we were setting up work transition is the way I still see it some, done sometimes today. And that is we went into the community 
around the high school and negotiated with some particular employers to place a student there to try out work. And so that's how I got to know Tim. And we placed him in a little mom and pop grocery, really nice people. They're called Shaw's Grocery. And it was a pretty nice arrangement for the grocery store in the school. It was a nice partnership. But for Tim, it wasn't good at all because really all it did was point out things that he wasn't good at doing, like staying on task and talking excessively and people not knowing how to handle that and always needing to have the employment support person by his side all the time, telling him to get back on task. Come on, Tim, hurry up. You know, that's kind of what it was like. Well, um, right about this time, I, I had been involved at community employment, I guess, at that point for about seven years. And I got a chance to go to the to the University of Kentucky and and do some in-services about supported employment. And one of the things I knew right away was I had a lot to learn. Um, and so I got to study with just the leading people in the country. It was fabulous. I got to work a lot with uh, Mike Callahan and other people from Mark Golden Associates. I got to, as you had mentioned, study pretty deeply a theory that just had this profound impact on me called social role valorization theory. I got to meet Dr. Wolfensberger and work with a lot of the associates of, of um, with the International SRV Association. I had a lot of learning I got to do. And so I worked at the university for three years and I developed this incredible just understanding of what this work was really about. So I went back into direct services. I got restless at the university. I thought, I want to go back and do what I've been teaching but what I was teaching wasn't what I had done. And that seemed like a real disconnect to me. So Tim was the first person I got to work with. And the first thing that I got to do with Tim was this process that we now call discovery. It's one of the things that I learned from Mike Callahan. And it had been published in a book that he wrote in 1988. And I'd been teaching it, but I'd never done it. And it just fascinated me. How can I spend time with Tim? This time around, instead of starting with a grocery store and figure out what kind of conditions need to be in place for Tim to be at his best, who are his coworkers? What's the nature of the task? That kind of stuff. What kinds of things are, are is Tim interested in? And what kinds of things does he have to contribute to, to work? And so what I'd learned from that was that Tim had this really amazing apparently innate mechanical aptitude. And I learned that through a variety of um, just spending time with Tim, what he regularly did, and, and setting up some new ways, particularly with a mechanic that lived near Tim, whom I knew, and um, to um, get to spend some time with them together. Anyhow, the, the, the outtake of that was, and the outcome of that, was that Tim ended up getting a job with a small company called Product Handling Equipment, and they make conveyor systems that were sold all over the world. A small company, that was one of the conditions for him. Consistent people, that was one of the conditions for him. Work that would use his mechanical ability and where that would be appreciated. 
And so he learned how to build subassemblies of conveyor systems. And all of this stuff had been a problem before, talking all the time, not staying on task, not staying in one place, having had needing to have somebody tell him what to do all of the time. None of that was an issue. And not only that, I didn't provide any instruction for Tim on the job because one of the things that I learned through social role valorization theory was when you're looking at designing supports for people, you always start with what is typical and valued before inserting yourself. And so I took time to study how people would typically learn to assemble the sub-assemblies. And I thought, well, they teach this all the time. They'd be great at showing Tim. And so I was there when he first got started and helped him get to know people and help people get to know him. And But he was off and running, you know, because the, the task was a good fit for him. The company was a good fit for him. And so what that told me was that I had made all these assumptions about what he would be capable of doing without really knowing him. So Tim's story is one that really put me on a trajectory to be hungry to learn more and to practice more. And it, and it made me more interested in teaching about supported employment, too. Yeah, awesome. That's I think that's really helpful for us to take in because it's a different way of thinking about supporting someone with a disability to uh, gain and, and keep employment. Um, mm-hmm. with, with Tim's story, Milton, do you know how long uh, that employment uh, lasted for him? It lasted until the company closed. Um, and I don't remember exactly. I think it was about 12 years or so. Wow. Okay. So it was like uh, a substantial amount of time. Yes, a substantial period of time where he went on to learn new things that they taught him within the company. Yeah, great. Right. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for sharing with that. And like, I think there's a lot of things we can dive into within Tim's story around uh, what good supported employment looks like. Um, Maybe, you know, you mentioned some of those practices that uh, when you first worked with Tim, such as, uh, you know, fitting kind of for, uh, fitting the person to the job that was available, right? Rather than finding the, the job that fit the person, right? Um, that being a very different approach. Um, can you maybe tell us some of those key uh, principles that have kind of shifted and changed over time when it comes to supported employment? And that might be uh, one of the key ones. It is. And it was for me. I remember. Um, when I first got started in supported employment in 81, the only real ways that I knew of to think about what kind of job would be a good job for somebody was to ask them what they wanted to do um, or test them. And um, neither was adequate because very often people really didn't have a frame of reference for knowing what they wanted to do. Now, sometimes people would, but more often than not, they wouldn't. They would say something that maybe somebody else had said to them, like, I think you'd be a good greeter or, you know, or they something they had just seen, you know, one of their friends do that they thought, well, maybe I could do that, too. But there wasn't any real way to think about what would be something that would be really likely to work for this person and something that they would enjoy, you know, for the most part. Like I like my work, you know, I get up in the morning and I look forward to doing it. 
how could we kind of like kind of like the approach that we do with everybody else i think so like what 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 kind of what kind of things you're good at doing and who are the people you're going to be working with and all of that so um mike callahan and brad garner wrote a book in 1988 and this is when i was starting at the university and it's one of many supported employment books that i read but man, I couldn't lay this one down. And one of the reasons was it talked about this process called the vocational profile. That's what discovery was called then, what we now call discovery at Mark Golden and Associates. But it was the vocational profile. And um, it was described as this process for getting to know people, having a relationship with them to know what would be more likely to go well for them in terms of the nature of the work and the people and the setting. Uh, things that were interesting to them and things that they had to contribute. And so it's um, it's not a linear process. It's not like taking a test and you check off the boxes. It requires some intuition, I think, to think about, well, what would I want to learn now and how would I learn that information? It requires, and this is really important for Tim, or, or it was for me with Tim, and that was it requires challenging your former assumptions about people, about what they can or cannot do. So, for instance, you know, I I said, well, Tim can't sit still. He's going to have to have a job. He's moving all the time because this, he was a young man at the time. This young man, um, you know, is not going to sit still. So what, what, what the vocational profile that we call discovery um forced me to do was say, so under what under what circumstances rather does Tim stay in one place? And so I got to learn that there are times that he stays in one place. And there were times when he was like fiddling with electronics, sometimes things other people didn't want him to do, like he would take apart his sister's VCR and things like that. That was one example of when he would sit still. And then I um you know, I, I talked to my um, or Tim's neighbor, rather, Bill, who was my Volkswagen mechanic, and he had a shop in his home. And I said, you know, I think Tim has some mechanical ability. Could you see what you think? And so they did some work around the shop together. And um, I was there when they were working a lot of the time. Tim would stay right with Bill, you know, if they were working on an engine or something. And so there were times when he would sit still. And, and this is, you know, this interest and skill that he had around mechanical, um, you know, his, his adeptness at mechanical, mechanically inclined tasks became apparent. So, um, you know, the, so anyhow, this whole process unfolded for me in a way, um, in, in a way that I felt like, golly, I can envision this guy having a really good job that he likes and where people will appreciate him for who he is and for what he knows. So the very first part of discovery is spending time with people doing familiar things. So we did that. And then we branched off to doing novel things. So it, working with Bill was something down the road a bit, you know, a month or so down the road after um, I got to see Got to know Tim in other ways, just how we spent time around the house and in the neighborhood and the um, Buckner and Crestwood community, real rural area of the state. Right. So that discovery process being a huge, another kind of, uh, 
part of that shift of identifying uh, really who that person is, what their interests might be, what their capabilities might be, challenging your assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being a kind of a, a, a key change uh, as well. Are there other kind of key changes that you've seen historically, Milton, and um, how what good employment supports look like? So, so that was a big one, you know, starting with the person and not the job and having a way to think about that. And, and you know, keep in mind that was 1988, which best I can figure is about 35 years ago. Is that right? As amazing as that sounds. Something like that. I'm having a hard time doing the math. Yeah, my- yeah. So <laughs> it might so, be, it might be uh, yeah, something like that. A bunch of years. And, 30, and it so, is thirty-five. It is thirty-five. Years. Uh, okay, so 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 one of the things about that is that you know the vocational profile was like the first iteration of what we now call discovery. So it doesn't look just like it did in 1988. You know the idea behind it is the same, but we've gotten a lot more sophisticated about the process, and and so that's one thing to know that discovery is not a new thing. And it's been evolving over time. And Mark Golden Associates is not the only organization that teaches discovery. I know Griffin Hammes Associates teaches discovering personal genius. It comes from the same, the same root here. Yeah. You know. So, um, and I, I you know, I, I think Transcend and some other organizations do too. Um, so that's that was huge. Um because so much of the work had been either asking people what they wanted to do or testing them testing them or just putting people in an available job which is pretty much what happened to Tim at the grocery and that still happens to people i hear in work transition programs you know people in schools the school has these set places to go well that's a problem because none of those <laughs> work very well and it can have the opposite to the desired effect, which is people leaving school thinking about, wow, I want to go work. Instead, leaving school with people thinking, well, they this person can't work or that person themselves thinking, well, if that's work, then count me out, you know. So that's huge discovery. Uh, the, the second area that I got to work with this understanding with Tim was to study the company, to develop relationships within the company and study the company in the same way that you get to spend time with the person and understand the person and develop a relationship with the person. How do you develop relationships with people in the company? Understand what's important to the company, how they typically do things, who teaches, what does that look like? And I really had my grounding in that from social role valorization theory, but um, because it was 1991, but since, but in the later 90s, Mark Golden Associates came out with a highly complementary way of looking at that. We call it the seven phase sequence, and that's how we teach job development now. So this has been around for, you know, going on three decades too. So it's not a new thing. But just like discovery, we've learned more about it over time. So we call that the seven-phase sequence. 
And it's much richer, really, than the culturally valued analog, what you use in SRV theory, what happens with valued people, what are valued practices with valued people in a particular instance, and, and how could those be helpful to the person you're supporting? So the seven-phase sequence starts by learning about the culture of the company, who are the people who work here, work there, what are the methods of tasks that people are be learning. Then you look at the means for people to learn their jobs. Then you, you spend time with the people who teach, and you have those people teach you so you can see, not so you can teach being the support person, but so you can know how that person teaches, and you know the person you're, you're representing. And so you can come up with a plan for people who typically teach to do that as much as possible. And then for, um, um, for you yourself to be available more in an advising role or in a consulting role rather than in the direct support role. Now, it doesn't mean you don't get involved in some teaching from time to time. You may need to, um, but, but that's not the starting point. The starting point is using what's typical as much as possible. So something else I want to say about that, which, again, is an older piece of research, but another um, another brilliant person I got to learn from, you know, when I was kind of getting my sea legs and supported employment, a man um, named David Mank, who at that point in time was in Oregon. Um, but but later on, um, David did a lot of the um, early work in supported employment and stayed with it. And when this issue of um, Jan Nisbet and Dave Hagner wrote this paper called Natural Supports in the Workplace, a Reexamination of Supported Employment in 1988. And that's what introduced the idea around natural supports. And then, you know, that's where, to me, SRV was helpful and the seven-phase sequence was helpful. Well, David Mank, here's the point. David Mank did a study a number of years into this, but I think it was just, you know, like the early 2000s or something. And so he did a study to find out what are the benefits of people getting support from the people who typically provide support. And what he learned from that, some of it was predictable, that people were more integrated as employees in the business. People knew them, you know, be more likely to ask people out to lunch, all that kind of thing. But he also learned that people made more money. They, you know, the, the more typical support people got, the more money they earned. But the most important thing to me that was learned from that was how important it is from the very first day of a person's job to start getting instruction from the people who typically provide it. Because he said that if who it is that starts providing instruction, that becomes the norm. And it's very difficult to change later. So this whole idea that we'd had in our heads that we'll start instruction and then gradually shift it over to the people who are there, that that didn't happen much. But yeah. what so so from the first day, you know, the, the people who typically provide instruction need to do that. Right. Makes sense that that dependency gets started and then it's very difficult to to break, both for you know that right. person receiving support from the you know the job coach and from the business's perspective being dependent right. on that job coach being in their in their business. So that's a really important point. I I wrote I'm writing down a couple of notes here as you're talking, Milton. And one of the things that I wrote down before you started talking about it was like research stats. Is there any research that's done has been done that um, 
talks about, like you mentioned, um, the uh, higher uh, rates of pay, right? Um, when taking a, an approach that is based on, you know, these practices of discovery, the um, seven phase sequence. Um, and, and would all that be considered customized employment? Milton, when you when you it, talk, it about was. It? I think early, like early iteration of customized employment, okay. which is that which is the next big shift. So, okay. but before so I talk just, about just that, one, just one question, we'll get to yeah, customized yeah. employment. But like, is there any is there any research or stats that uh, show kind of like the success rates in terms of you know getting employed and keeping employment using these practices you're talking about versus kind of you know uh, the original practices that you first tried to use with with Tim? Well, David Mank did a number of studies with colleagues, and I, and I believe they were the early 2000s. I can look that up and send it to you when okay. we finish, if you like. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and it was around the benefits of, of pay and integration. Okay. Um, the, the benefits of pay and integration were, were significant. I'm, I'm trying, you know, there, there was one that there are other studies that have been done. There was one in the Journal of Vocational Rehabilitation a number of years, much more recent than than Dr. Manx, that was um, about the impact of pre-vocational programs and wages. And um, what they found was of wages, this is people who went to a pre-vocational program and then got a job. And what they learned was that people who went to a pre-vocational program earn lower wages than people who did not go to a pre-vocational program. And when you say so, pre-vocational, that might be like work readiness or there might be different. Yeah, names. a work readiness kind of program, you know, like kind of like where I worked at a sheltered workshop, something like that. Or, you know, and, and so and they attributed that in the paper to people's expectations that they had of themselves and and that the employers had of them. They had, a you know, it wasn't. A real clear line as to why that happened, but it was clear that that did happen. So, you know, but honestly, I think a lot of the benefit to these practices is it's just intuitive. Of course, it's going to work better. I mean, of course, it's going to work better for people to be in a job that's a good fit for them than one that's just arbitrary. Of course, it's going to work better for them and for the and the employer. And the more people are perceived and are authentically in the role of employee within a business, rather than being seen as Milton's client, you know, or community employment's client, the higher expectations people are going to have, the more likely it is that they'll move on and teach people new things that they perceive. The more they're seen that somebody would be seen as my client, the more they're going to be looking to me all the time saying, what do you, what, what do you, do you think Tim could do this? You know, yeah. Um, and and you know, so Tim was a, another perfect example. Going back to his story, I remember doing like following up after he'd been there a number of months and asking the manager, or actually the owner of the company, if Tim could learn some additional tasks. And what I learned was that they'd already moved on. They hadn't asked my permission. Thank you very much. They'd already moved on and were teaching him many additional tasks. You see. So you you see that relationship is so important. The first day of work, I just always emphasize that to people. Orchestrate that first day of work so it goes well 
for everybody and that the first person to provide instruction, even if you're going to be doing some of it the first day, the very first person that provides instruction is somebody who typically provides instruction. And that way, you will be seen as a support person, as an advisor. Oh, you might want to try this. Or maybe if he would move a little bit over to this way, it'd work better versus the doer and people watching you and going, oh, I don't know if I could do that or not. Good thing Milton's here, you know. Mm-hmm. And and it just it's huge. And anyhow, I always appreciate David Mank because he put research to that. Um, but it's intuitive, isn't it? You know? Yeah. Um, and and so yeah, that um so, so those are the two of the big shifts in terms of who provides the training as much as possible. Doesn't mean that I've never provided any training since I certainly have, but only after what is typically used as much as possible. And um, and sometimes I've provided some instruction for people who typically provide training. You see, that's part of our job, too. Yeah. Like, you know, like, well, you might try this showing Tim this way. You know, I think that might work better knowing Tim and we've had a chance to know each other, you know. So that's one. Discovery is one. And the other is customized employment. And that has also evolved. So I would say that Tim's job the way I think about customized employment nowadays in 1991, his job was a negotiated job. As a matter of fact, in the day, we probably would have called it a carved job because everybody at product handling equipment, there were eight employees and just about everybody did everything. You know, everybody worked on the presses. Everybody drove the forklift. Everybody worked in the paint booth, you know. Um, But I looked at specific sub-assembly tasks that were really putting the inner the innards you know of the conveyor systems together the, the intricacy of that i could see tim doing that and sitting and doing it, it th- th- these were like bench assembly jobs we don't have a whole lot of those anymore but that's what it was and i could just envision him sitting there and doing it and he did but it was a carved job in that way it was like saying would it be beneficial to you if you had somebody just do the sub-assemblies and then you all wouldn't do those or as many of them, you know, because Tim would mostly do that. Now, in the, the, in the U.S., the real beginnings of what we call customized employment at Mark Golden Associates, and I think what other people would call customized employment, began in 2001. And that was at the beginning. That was when the United States Department of Labor developed the Office of Disability Employment Policy. And at that point in time, the Secretary of Labor herself coined the term customized employment, and we grasped it. And it was really around looking at job design that worked for people. It wasn't anything about disability. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. So we kind of grabbed it. I think Mike Callahan grabbed it. I, I might not be correct on that detail, but I suspect that's true. And so started thinking about, so what does customized employment look like? And and early on, it looked a lot like kind of what I did with Tim, taking parts of people's jobs. But over time, we've gotten to thinking more about that. Um, and so the way we think about it at, at, um, Mark Golden Associates and 
again, other people besides us teach customized employment, but, but our way of thinking about it is what could be done to level the playing field a bit? Because if we're going into it the way I did with Tim, I didn't call it job carving, but people are thinking or could be thinking, well, why would I hire Tim to do part of a job when I can hire somebody else to do everything? What's the advantage for me? And so with Tim, it really was augmenting productivity. They were getting more of that done, you know, but what would be better than augmenting productivity? And so at Mark Golden Associates, we started thinking about that in three broad ways. We started thinking about what's on the job candidate side. This is would be the Tim side of things. And that would be discovery. And the way we characterize that now is conditions, interest, and contribution. So you've worked with somebody in discovery to know those things. And so what about on the business end? What do you have to offer them? And so in customized employment, we take the conditions, interest, and contributions. And toward the end of the process, we have a planning meeting and convene people who know the job candidate. And we come up with tasks that fit the conditions, interests, and contributions, and a list of companies then that we think might benefit from those tasks. And notice that we're thinking in terms of tasks, not jobs, because job descriptions, job titles, all of that can take us down a rabbit trail. So we're thinking about tasks, like mechanical assembly, you know, would be one for Tim, in other words. And then you think about what are companies that need these tasks that fit the conditions, interest, and contributions of the person. So that dictates what company you goes to, that you go to. That's one thing that's important. You can see how that comes from discovery. So what do you have to offer the employer then? Well, you have these tasks to offer the employer, but you're trying to think of what would be an advantage of those tasks. And so we look at three specific areas. One is called unmet need. What kinds of things aren't getting done in the in the company the way the way they need to get done that would be a fit for the person, not just not just something that isn't getting done that would be a fit for the person and the nature of tasks. What kinds of things are a particular benefit to the business that just scream this person, you know, um, benefits tasks a particular benefit to the company? And so sometimes you'll have somebody really like Tim who just has this attribute that is just so strong, and you think wow, that would be something this company really could use. Maybe even when you're doing, when we're doing a needs benefits analysis, we could see something new, new, something new that the company might add just based on that strength of the person. And the third area is tasks that are performed by others. And that's where we look at people who are highly credentialed and highly paid in the company. And we're noticing what they do when we're spending time in the business doing the needs analysis. And we're thinking, Tim could do that as an entry-level employee. He could do that. Now, we want him to be paid a good wage for doing it, but he wouldn't be paid the same thing as the owner of the company doing it. But then the owner of the company could do more owner-like things while Tim does these things, you know, at a, um, that would free the owner up and at a, at a good competitive wage, but not the same thing again, that the credentialed person would be paid to do that task. So looking at the employer side of the equation, then we're thinking, 
the benefit for that person would be finding a way that this person we're representing could meet an unmet need, something that's not getting done the way it needs to get done. A task of particular benefit to the company, a task that is an, an exceptional fit for the person we're representing and would add value to the company. And then the third area is tasks better performed by others, where the person would be paid a good, solid, entry-level wage that anybody else at the company would be paid for doing an equivalent sort of task, but it would free up a higher paid and credentialed person to do more of those fitting kinds of tasks. Um, and so that is, that's where we're thinking currently in terms of customized employment, this evening of the scales a bit. We're giving the company this, uh, and we're and we're providing access to good work for the job candidate like this and making it more balanced. Right. And we're in the process creating valued employees, right? Not just tokenized Absolutely. tokenized jobs um, right. for the sake of saying that, hey, we employ someone with a with a disability. Um, so That's super, absolutely. super important. And I think that process is really helpful for um, for us to to start to to think about. Um, a question that came up for me when when we're looking for in that in in a, that discovery process of okay we've identified the uh, conditions interests contributions of the individual we've done that work now we're thinking of the tasks right of uh, you know where in our community those uh, those those the, the, there are tasks that are our, our loved one. Mm-hmm. Or the person we're supporting could be doing, and then we're thinking about the companies. When we're thinking about the companies, I'm curious: is it have you seen any difference in success rates between looking at like family-owned companies versus larger corporations? Or have you noticed any differences there? I mean, because just off the top, uh, for me, you might have uh, be able to build better relationships with, uh, you know, uh, a family-owned company and might have more continuity over time. But I'm just curious from your experience. Oh, you're absolutely right. That um, that customized employment certainly can work in a company of any size, and and it has. Um, but your odds are better with a with small business for the reasons you name. I mean, you know, they're going to have more flexibility to make decisions. It was like product handling equipment and Tim, small family owned company. You know, they sold conveyor systems internationally, but small company. Yeah, they can decide right then. Yeah, what we'll do this. We've never done this before, but that sounds good to us, you know. And they don't have to call, you know, Atlanta or New York or Los Angeles to make a decision. So small companies um, are preferable. Yeah. Okay. That's that's helpful, and that makes sense. So, Milton, just a couple questions. um, A few more questions before we kind of start to wrap up. and I know I've asked you this question a couple of times. It's not the easiest question to answer, but I'm just thinking of, you know, the the mom that's out there listening to this. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, she wants to help uh, her loved one to, you know, maybe get their first paid part-time job and loves what you're saying around mm-hmm. customized employment, job discovery, um, mm-hmm. having the job fit uh, the person, right, um, versus the other way around. Um you know, and, and maybe she's explored some supportive uh, employment agencies in her area. They're, and that's not the approach that they're taking. Or maybe she hasn't done that research yet. But just what would you mm-hmm. say to that 
to that mom in terms of um, trying to get this type of support that you're describing? Well, one thing would be to interview people who are providing um, supported employment or customized employment or open employment, whatever it's called, you know, the idea of getting a, a valued job where everybody else works in a job that's a good fit and just see where people are. Because my experience is that there's quite a range of of understanding. Um, I mean, I've spent, you know, a lot of the last 30 plus years teaching. So th th this is stuff that a lot of people have heard and studied and they're interested in and doing, but not everybody. And so that that would be one thing. Um, if they're you know, and certainly there are there are places, you know, that that just aren't going to have services. And I think there is a lot that families can do, like with these same principles. And so one of the things you can do is to learn as much about this kind of this way of thinking as you can and what kinds of things that you could do on your own or maybe even in partnership with a service. Maybe you could do some and they could do some. And yeah. maybe you, you'd find people who'd want to go along with you in doing it. So I know, Eric, and you know, you know, just in my experience with your parent groups that that you've had some parents negotiate really good jobs, yeah. you know, for their sons and daughters. And so that certainly is possible. I think the tricky part about it is that it's not it's not typical you know, for a mom or dad or brother or sister to be looking for a job for a for a family member. And so I think kind of constructing the ask and that kind of thing is is a little different. But it's not to say that it can't be done. And and I know people have done it well. Um and you do too. <laughs> and um and so the 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 more nuanced part of this and the stuff that's still a little harder to figure out is, you know, you can, I can, like, unless you have some kind of professional identity as a consultant, a job consultant, or I mean, that's what I call myself, an employment consultant. And so I like to spend some time in your company and I have insurance to do that, everything, you know, that I'd like to spend some time here to understand more about what's important to you and how you do things to see if there might be something to be a fit for Tim. And generally people will let you do that, you know, if, if, if they think that's something that's worthy of exploring, they'll let you. I have a harder time envisioning, you know, a parent being able to, to do that, to get back there and do it from, you know, um, so that would be an example where either you kind of have to operate without that level of information, which is possible, but not ideal. Or, again, maybe you could partner with somebody within an organization and they could do the they could do that part of it. Yeah. The other option that comes to mind that you've shared previously is um, if if you have the funds or access to um, some sort of support that gives you flexibility over how you can direct funds, you right. could hire someone yourself, hire somebody. Um, a contractor or something like that to uh, to play that role. And they might need some support on understanding these ideas and, and implementing them as well. And that kind of brings up another question, Milton, like if a family or 
you know, if a supporter or if a, you know, any, I don't know, an executive director of an organization is listening to this and they want to learn more about customized employment, um, where would you send them? Or is there uh, somewhere that they can go to learn more about the training that you do? Well, so, you know, I'd be, if you want to leave my email, I'd be glad to connect, um, to connect people. I think a lot of what, you, you know, your your idea about hiring somebody specifically um, to support their son or daughter, I mean, you have some great resources for that, you know, and I work with some um, family organizations and other places who also have just some superb resources, conferences, online things that people can access. So there's a lot of training that's available far outside of what I personally would do that I'd be glad to, you know, try to connect people with. And in some some areas, <laughs> you know, I would know people um, who you may be able to contact at the university or on a service provider level to um, try to make a, a connection. Awesome. So. Um, I'll give you, well, you, you have my email address and, and if people ask you for that, that that's fine. You can ask them to to get in touch with me and I'll do my best to connect. Okay, perfect. Bilton, is there any kind of final thoughts or anything else you wanted to um, mention around employment, customized employment before we wrap up? Well, I just think, I, I don't know that I know anything about this that that you all don't already know, but having a good job is just such an important part of people's lives in terms of how people see themselves and how other people perceive them and having genuine opportunities to contribute and give of yourself and everything that we get from work. It's just a really big role. And so I guess I would try to be encouraging and say, don't lose heart because it's, um, I think a lot is is possible that hasn't been explored yet, and and it can make a really big difference. Yeah. So thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me, Milton. Um, such a wealth of information uh, on employment and and supporting people with disabilities to to gain good employment. So um, I appreciate you, Milton. We'll share those uh, those resources. And uh, thanks so much for joining. Well, thank you, Eric. Take care. Hey folks, just a quick note here. If you enjoyed this episode with Milton Tyree, hit the subscribe button. Subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and you'll get access to more conversations like this and more insights from me to support your loved one with a developmental disability to live into their own awesome ordinary life, meaning more freedom for your loved one, but also for you. So uh, also along that path, if, you know, a key thing with uh, supported employment is capability, right? And supporting your loved one to grow their capability, grow their independence. So if that's something that you want to work on, I think you're going to get a lot of value, a lot of benefit out of my seven strategies for more independence PDF guide. So I've got a link here uh, below the video or in the show notes. So go into your podcast app or scroll down on the YouTube channel into the show notes and look for that free guide. Click on the link, enter your email address, and I'll send that free guide 
slide over to you. And it's going to be super helpful um, to get those seven strategies to start to support your loved one, to grow their capability, grow their independence. And I know that's going to help towards employment and many other things in their life. So thanks so much for listening. I'll catch you in the next episode.